that got interesting because you would you would go up front and say what you did. Company six road first, you did this. Company twelve next, you did this. The chief at the time was pretty old, crusty old, by the book kind of guy. So he's in the back of the room, and this lieutenant been in the truck company, same truck company for like thirty years. He's a crusty old guy too. He got up front and was saying, you know, ladder one forty one did this, this, and that. So the chief interrupted him and said, uh, Lieutenant, you've got on your report that you use 500 feet of ladder. Said, uh, you don't carry that much ladder on your truck. He looked right at him and he said, well, Chief, he said, we put the Earl ladder up three different times because you couldn't make your mind up where you wanted it. He said, that's 300 feet right <laughs> it's there. 300 feet of ladder truck. Right. And all of us were facing forward. We try not to laugh. <laughs> and this lieutenant is staring the chief down at the back of the room. And I guess... It seemed like a long time, but say but a minute, he said, carry on with it. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And when you think about legends in the fire service, a few things come to mind. One is a person who helped shape an organization and helped that organization develop. And it's also normally someone who was there when that department was formed or underwent some significant changes that shaped how they operated. Some of those people rise to higher levels in in the rank structure or expand their sphere of influence beyond their own station, their own company, and their own department. And other legends are part of some timeless stories like we hear in episode 23 with Lieutenant Ken Tanner. My guest today feels all those qualities, and while I'm sure he's likely not to admit it, I think he's a legend, and that's why I've asked him to join me here today. And please welcome most recently retired fire chief from uh, Roanoke County, Virginia, Chief Rick Birch. Rick. Thank you, Robert. Good Thanks to see for being you. here, man. Good, good to catch up with you again. We haven't bumped into each other in quite a while. It's, it's been a while. Good yeah. to catch up and uh, tell some stories. And uh, uh, we we had we just finished lunch and uh, had heard some stories about cats getting hit by fire trucks and lemon meringue pies. And uh, I don't know if we'll get into some of those, but uh, with uh, with Rick's long experience in the fire service, which is he he shared with me, pretty much started the day you were born. Uh, this is this is likely to be a multiple episode series with Rick because of <laughs> because of his time in the department. So I appreciate you being here today. There are some folks are scared to give me a microphone. They don't know how long it will go. Well, well heck, I got 99 hours of tape left in this digital recorder. So if we get close, we'll, we'll call it quits. Right. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, let's start off. Yeah, you, when we were talking earlier today, it's, um, you know, your, your family history. You, you weren't the first birch in the fire department, particularly in the city of Richmond. Uh, how far back in the department does your family go? My grandfather uh, was a captain in Richmond years ago. I have uh, some actual pictures of him, 19, early 1900s, uh, still with the horses and standing in front of the apparatus with horses. And then I also have a picture of him standing next to, it was 19, I believe it was 1921, was the very first motorized apparatus that Richmond received. And then, of course, from there, my father uh, was in the fire service. He taught uh, firefighting in the Navy in World War II and Korean War, and then later came back and, and started his career with Richmond. And then his brother, my uncle, was a firefighter in Richmond. So uh, I think between all of us, this comes up to almost 150 years of fire service uh, history. Yeah, in and, in and around Richmond and uh, points west from, you know, after you went went from Richmond to Hanover to, to Roanoke and we'll we'll dive into some of those for sure but uh did you ever get to you did you meet your grandfather did you get to know him when you were young I did not unfortunately he had passed away you know before I was born mm-hmm. yeah. but your dad certainly was a big influence on you and how you got into the business talk a little bit about how your 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 entry into the world was influenced by the fire service well I was born on Christmas day in 1951 it was a Tuesday, and my father was actually at an oil tank fire in Highland Park in Richmond, and the battalion chief had to go get him and then come back by and get my mother, and they took us to the hospital. So I guess somewhere in that transition, I got to Gene <laughs> going there. And uh, 
you know, so I, as I got a little bit older, I would say I was born in 51, so I'm going to say late 50s, I was eight, nine years old. Uh, back in those days, it was two shifts, so you pretty much worked every other Saturday unless you had a Kelly day, a vacation day. My mother would use those Saturdays to do her things, go get her hair fixed and shopping and so forth, and would take me by the station that morning where my father was working. It was station 14 uh, over in, Ho- in the Holland Park area at Hawthorne Avenue. And uh, I would just spend the whole day there. And I was just at awe the whole day of just, it was a two station, a ladder truck and an engine company, so they had all the equipment there. And uh, just to sit at the kitchen table to eat lunch with them and, and hang around with them. And my big excitement of the day is, of course, if they got a call and they pulled out and I got to close the door and, and then open it when they came back. So they left left you sitting there by yourself. To, was, by you were state, you're on station watch, yep, the eight-year-old eight station watch guy. Yep, yep. And uh, she would come back four or five o'clock in the afternoon and I'd cry and throw a little fit because I didn't want to leave. <laughs> you wanted to stick stick I around for the stay. night shift. And that went on for, that went on for several years. It was so... I could say earlier from that time on, it was another in it doubt in my mind as to what I wanted to do. And made it happen. Wait, so where did you uh, did you go first? Did you did you start in Richmond or where did you start in Hanover? No, uh, we at the time when I was born, we lived in Highland Park in the city. And in 1964, uh, the family moved to Mechanicsville. And at the time, Mechanicsville was pretty rural. You know, it was pretty rural back then. And they had a volunteer fire department that I went up to visit. And in those days, you could join as a junior member when you was 14 years old. So as soon as I, as my father said, you have your grades straight in school, you can join. So that was a big incentive to try to study a little bit. <laughs> to at least get a yeah, reasonable at least, grade. at least get a C. At least get a C. So uh, I joined at age 14. And back then, you could do everything a senior member could do but drive. Ride on the back step, uh, you know, after you had some training, you could go inside a structural fire, and certainly, you know, we had a, a number of brush fires and all back then. But Mechanicsville was a very professional volunteer fire department. They they had good people, good leadership, had good trucks. I mean, it was disciplined. You know, it wasn't just go up there and sit around and have a good time. We cleaned trucks. We trained. Uh, it was just a, a super good volunteer fire department. And that's actually, I guess I was 14 or 15, the first structural fire I went into was training, burning the old farmhouse, and had the old all-purpose mass. So uh, I still, in my mind, I can see the chief was carrying me up and some others uh, to the top landing, the second floor was on fire, and, you know, hitting the fire from the steps and that all-purpose mass. And that, you know, that's an experience. If you you know the first time you get in that situation and and, and all purpose mass as you know, it's not like the self-contained positive pressure today. You had to basically when you breathe, you were sucking air up through the bottom of the canister, through the filter, mm-hmm. and then up into your face space. That was an effort effort in and of itself. Right. And then the physical exertion of whatever else you was doing, pulling hose, doing whatever. But uh, yeah, when I first came in, they had the all purpose mass was still in service. Any, uh, you know, as a 14-year-old riding either the back step or did you have jump seats back there or oh, it was no. just back steps? Just back step. Any, uh, any big incidents that kind of ring, ring in your memory that uh, stick with you? We had uh, mainly then we had some significant brush fires. Um, and you had your structural fires. It would be a house or something back then. McCaskill didn't have a lot of industry or apartment buildings. or Nothing like it's nothing not like that now. You ran accidents. It was a rescue squad that did, uh, you know, the extrication, that kind of stuff. Uh, but we were all trained, and back then it was called, uh, first day it was, it was American Red Cross. Advanced, I don't remember advanced, that. Advanced first aid or multimedia. Yeah, it was an old green book. Remember yeah. the green book with a red cross on it? We did that. I do recall one brush fire. It was a pretty good-sized brush fire. And uh, I had an Indian tank, and I was just going down through the woods putting this fire in. I thought I was doing great. And I finally caught up with the forest warden. He was setting a backfire. And I put out all his <laughs> yeah, backfire. You were putting out the backfire. Yeah. And, you know, I was 14 years old. I've heard a few cuss words before, but I learned some new ones that day. <laughs> and I can tell you what, I never put a backfire in again. <laughs> yeah. Look, hey, look, didn't I do a great job? <laughs> yeah, well, no, not really. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, uh, another interesting thing back then, 
we would do door-to-door collections, fun drives. It was all door-to-door. And I still got a couple of old receipt books. You would write the person a receipt if they gave you a donation. And I looked through some of those the other day, and it was 50 cent, $2. I think the biggest one was $5. Now, this is 1965, 66. But a funny story, a good high school friend of mine, we played football together in high school, and we were both in the mechanics involved in fire department. We were collecting in the subdivision. So one person take one side of the street and one person take the other side. So I knocked on this guy's door and he came to the door and I don't know if he worked graveyard shift and I woke him up or what, but he told me to get the hell off his front porch, don't come back, don't knock on his door, don't this. So I, you know, I'm 15 years old or so. So I turn around and I'm walking back out to the street and I see my buddy doing the same thing. He just left the house on the other side of the street. So it just hit me real quick. I said, hey, boom. This guy up here says he knows you. <laughs> he knows you. And uh, if you come up and knock on his door and he sees you, he'll give you a good donation. <laughs> so my man bit. And I could see him reaching for the door, getting ready to knock on it. And I be fell out in the daggone street laughing. And he knocked on the door. And this guy came back. And I mean, he was irate. He was pissed. So, of course, when Boone got back in the street, you know, he said, thank you, buddy. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. But, yeah, that was uh, – you didn't, you didn't get to lead him astray any other times. I bet. Uh, he was a little more suspect of you now. Yeah. <laughs> Another good time we had, the Mechanicsville Volunteer Fire Department had a um, small building booth out at the State Fair, and they sold food. That's part of their fundraising. And uh, this one particular year, they used to have these big tents in uh, – we would call them hoochie-coochie shows. But basically, it was a stripper. So they had these, we call them rallies or whatever, and they would walk around their side of the tent with axe handles looking for people trying to sneak into the tent. <laughs> and if it did, they'd crack them over the head with the axe handle. Well, that backed right up to our booth. So some of us youngins figured out real quick, if we feed these guys, we can get free, we can get into this tent show free without getting hit in the head with without an axe handle head. so yeah we started feeding them and anytime we want to go to the show we could go to the show free <laughs> at, at the fair at the fair at the state fair <laughs> yeah oh man well talk about things you'll never see in the fire department again as i said door to door a 14 year old riding tailboard and uh getting in the hoochie coochie show at the yeah. fairgrounds <laughs> and i don't know um i don't know if everybody will know where i'm talking about it. if you know where downtown mechanicsville is at the time, Eastern Hanover Fire Station, further down 360, had not been formed yet. So when we collected, we collected all the way down through Broad's Flats. Wasn't many houses down there, but we collected that far all the way down and into Black Creek. Black Creek was not there at this time. So Mechanicsville covered all of that area. Now that's a big, big chunk of geography. Chunk. So what is now maybe even four fire station districts is you guys had, had one. Yep. Oh, wow. So what, uh, what took, where did you go from there, uh, high school years? Where did that take you? Well, I, uh, of course, through high school, and when I graduated in 69, the Vietnam War was, you know, going strong. That was the biggest thing. My two best friends in high school who also were volunteers, John Boone, who I mentioned earlier, and, and Ronnie Edwards, who both came back from Vietnam, became veteran firefighters as well. Um, and I wasn't a college guy at the time. So I hung around, you heard this, heard that, got a few letters from them. So long story short, I went on down and, and I volunteered for the draft. The draft's in effect at that time, but you could volunteer and they just basically put your name in front of the list. I didn't join. If you join, it was a three-year hitch. If you just volunteer for the draft, it was two. So I thought, you know, that was where I was going to start. So uh, I ended up in Vietnam, spent a year there, and – I uh, went over when I was 18. I came back when I was 19. And almost 20, but I was still 19. And I came home and applied for the Richmond Fire Department, Richmond Fire Bureau, it was called at the time. And that was October. I got hired February the 7th. So between October and February the 7th, it was just kind of readjusting and being back to what we call the world. We yeah. used to call the United States the world when you was away. You get to go back to the world. How long was it from, uh, you see, you did, first question is, is if you volunteered for the draft, did that give you any, 
any ability to pick where you would go or what your MOS was or anything like that? Or is just that put you in the front of the line and pay, made you go next? Rather than put the, you just in front of the line. I always liked electrical work and doing the summers I was electrician's helper. So when you when you went in the army, uh, they they test you to you know to help put you in a certain MOS. I tested out uh, as electrician. It was pretty amazing. There's a thousand men that graduated in my graduating class from basic training. My mother and father came up. My father was a World War II Korean veteran, and they came up and wanted to see the ceremony. So at the end of the day, they dispersed everyone, and most people went on these buses and was going to infantry, Levin Bravo. It was two of us left out of the thousand men, and the drill sergeant told us, one of y'all is going to Hawaii, one's going to Alaska. We won't know till tomorrow morning. So I got to spend the night, you know, my parents came back the next day. I was going to Hawaii. So, because uh, that was considered overseas leave, I got a 30-day leave straight at a rookie school. Before, um, before, basic training. Yeah. before you went to Hawaii. Before I went to Hawaii. So uh, I went there, and everything there was Vietnam. I mean, the people that served were there, and that's all they talked about. In the club or whatever, is all they talked about. By that time, my two best friends, Ronnie and, and Boone, they were in Vietnam. I was getting letters from them. So, young and dumb, I volunteered to go. And bam, another third day leave. I had been in the Army nine months and had two 30 day leaves. <laughs> two, two months off. Two months off. So, once you did that, you was gone. And uh, I'll try to speed this up. Right. Um, <clears throat> when I got there, my MOS was electrician. They didn't have an opening anywhere for that. So the closest thing they had to it was I was put in a, a unit that was a maintenance unit, and my job was rebuilding tank starters. That was the closest thing to electric work they had, rebuilding tank starters. And I was thinking, you know, I left Hawaii. I didn't want to get killed, didn't want to get shot, didn't want to get hurt. But I left Hawaii to spend a year rebuilding tank starters. So very soon, about a month or two later, we was going to do, the United States was going to do an invasion into Cambodia to try to shut down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. A lot of supplies came down that way. Uh, there was an American fire base up in the central highlands called Bami Tuit. That, uh, that base had been vacated for a couple of years, and um, when it was, it was all stripped. You know, the Vietnamese came in and stripped everything out of them. So he came down top priority to get this base back up and running. And I got orders two hours later. I was on a helicopter going to Bambi to it, doing the electrical work to get the place back up. It was supposed to be a two-month uh, TDY, temporary duty. I stayed eight months. At that base? At that base. When I came back, uh, where I was initially stationed was Cameron Bay. In Cameron Bay, it was like being in the States. You had spit shine your boots, have your brass polished. It was just like being in the States. While I was there, I was fortunate enough, I was promoted to a buck sergeant at E5. So on the Army rules, they couldn't put me back rebuilding tank starters because now I was an E5. So I basically became the what I call Sergeant Friday for the company commander. The next two months, I just did whatever he needed a buck sergeant to do. Ran convoys, um, uh, medevac operations, and CQ duties, charge of the quarters when he's gone. Just is it, typical duties the last two months. You showed me a picture a minute ago. You and your buddy Boone were from over there. When did you hook up with him? It was after several months, <clears throat> several months that we uh, we were able to get together. We weren't stationed together the whole time, but we worked eight, it was probably at least a half a dozen times or better that we could get cross together. that pass together. Oh, yeah. Yes. All right, we probably do a whole other episode on that alone, just uh, your time there. But uh, we'll jump back to when you came back and got, got hired by Richmond. Now, your your dad was still working there at the time, was he? Yes, yes. What was uh, what was work work life like then? You say that they were, they were running two shifts, so was it uh, 24 on, 24 off? And 24 on, 24 off, and you got to pick four Kelly days a month. They call them Kelly days. And that was like in a rotation. If you were first picked this month and come on down the line, then next month you would drop the bottom and everybody else would move up. So everybody had a chance at first pick. Uh, the interesting thing there was typically – Saturdays would go first, Sundays would go next, Fridays would go next. So if you was on the last pick, the last rotation, 
you'd have to take a Monday or a Tuesday or something because the Saturdays and Sundays prime were picks were gone. During that time, they started building the toll road that uh, comes through Richmond now, and it cut through Oregon Hill and up through that way. So there's a bunch of houses, row houses, and all that um, were being torn down. And there was an arsonist there that every Friday night, Saturday night, would set off two or three of these row houses. Uh, I've been up there in one block on the second lawn and two blocks over another second lawn. He would set them on fire at the same time. But the morale got so high during that time, when we picked Kelly days, people were picking Mondays and Tuesdays because they wanted to work, to work Friday night. <laughs> so if you're on last pick, you might have to take two Saturdays off. That was your last pick. But it was uh, it was vacant houses, so we weren't hurting anybody or anybody's property, and uh, it was it was really some, some good old firefighting. That's pretty. And I heard some stories from Henrico too. They had a arsonist running around in the East End, about I don't know maybe early '80s, and everybody was canceling leave to come back because they wanted to be there for the fires. That was uh, it's interesting what motivates uh, motivates guys to take leave or not, as the case may be. Yep. Yep. And everybody was in a good mood. I mean, it was just everybody was joyful. We'd come in the morning, dirty hose, wash shows, clean the trucks. It was all good. Get ready for the next one. It was all good. Um, as you mentioned, my father worked for Richmond. He recently got promoted to captain just before I came back from Vietnam. Prior to that, uh, the city had a unit called the Flying Squad. The chief of the department had gone to a conference somewhere in another city and saw this concept and brought it back and thought it'd be good for Richmond. And basically what it was, it, he picked two lieutenants, one for each shift. My father was one. And they were able to handpick their men, and I say men back in those days. That's it, all it was. It was all men. Uh, they were able to handpick. So they picked the best guy from Station 1, the best guy from Station 3, and so forth. It uh, kind of pissed off all the other captains because they were picking their best All the men. good guys were going away. But they could handpick the men, and the whole city was there, First Lawn District. Any commercial assignment, anything like that, school, hospital, whatever, it was anywhere in the city, they went on the First Lawn, and then, of course, they went on any Second Lawn in the city. It was a, a, a firefighter's dream, I would say, for Richmond to be in that kind of unit. And they were very tight. Um, how, how big was that crew? How many people eight, on that unit? Huh? They had eight. Yeah. They eventually went to 10 because they got an Earl platform, a snorkel as a second piece. And when they did, they went to 10. But when it was just an engine, single engine, it was eight. So they had eight guys riding minimum, on an engine. Minimum six on duty. Wow. Two off on Kelly days, but minimum six. Yeah. And I think Daddy told me at one time the average weight was like 235, 240. These guys. Some horses. Yeah. yeah. They were. And they were so much pride in what they did that if one of them was sick for some reason, couldn't come to work, which is very rare because you would come in those days with a broken leg, they would call one of the people on Kelly days and have them come back because they didn't want anyone else filling in from another station into the flying squad. A rather exclusive club. Very exclusive. And there was no fair labor standards back then, so you didn't have to – if I did that for you today, you got to pay me back in 28 days mm -hmm. and, and all that. And my father, he liked the pre-connects packed a certain way. The lieutenant on the other shift liked them did. So first thing, the shift changed that morning, they would repack the pre-connects for the way that the way they, they that shift it, wanted it. The way that shift wanted it. And you just imagine today if you brought that up. Oh, my gosh. Well, you can't change where you put the nozzle in the shelf, much yeah. less change the hose packs. Yeah. You know, Rive is sick today. Uh, can you come in your day off and just work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Give me a few minutes. Yeah. They call that mandatory overtime these days. Yeah. 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 So I was very fortunate on that. I was assigned to um, Engine Company 6, and at the time, the flying squad was in that same house. Uh, they only, in the beginning, they only had a lieutenant on each shift in the flying squad. So when my father got promoted captain, he went to Engine 15 in Highland Park. So life was good. I was young, 20 years old, you know, back in Vietnam, had a job I loved. And I would go by my father's station a lot of times on my day off, and he was on the opposite shift, and I'd hang around most of the day. And the guys there loved that because, hey, Rick, you can be here a couple hours, I'm going to make a speed run. I'll be back. Oh, yeah, we good, we good. I was there one day, and my father was sitting on the old watch desk, and we were talking, and the phone rang, the city phone rang. It was the chief of the department. I didn't know at the time. 
and my father, I heard him say, yep, okay, yeah, yeah. And he said, hold on a minute, Chief. And he looked at me and said, Rick, do you like being at number six? And I said, yeah, I love it. And he said, okay, Chief, uh, no thank you. And when I got off the phone, I said, what was that about? And he said, well, they would put a captain in the flying squad, and the chief asked me to go back as a captain, but they would move you. You couldn't stay in the same station. And I'll tell you what, that chokes me up now a little bit because I know what it would have meant to him to be back on that to crew. To back on that crew. Yeah, it's um. You you were talking to me earlier about uh, he was the, he was still the first captain to ride the flying flying squad when he got promoted, right? Yes, he was. So he's got to stay there one day. He so. stayed there one day before they transferred him. So he he claims the title of being you know the first captain, but I know it would have meant a lot to him to you know go back. But he was looking out for you and letting you letting your career play out where where you wanted to be. He always did. Good for him. Man. He always did. Did you get to fight many fires? Did you get to, did you get to run calls with him, run fires? Yeah. Um, there were several times that, uh, by me being over there, we did. And there were several other times that uh, we were on duty. We, uh, one in particular, let me, I'll back up just a minute. When I went to uh, Engine 6, it was in February, they didn't have enough people to start a rookie school to April. So I rode, I didn't even have uniforms. I rode in blue jeans and a shirt <laughs> in the or whatever. <laughs> but I worked for three months in the station before they had the rookie school, which you don't see that much yep. anymore. And my volunteer experience certainly helped me a lot. I mean, I knew I had to ride on the back step, but I could hold a hose. Certainly I was very young, but I, I could do the basics with, with some leadership. But later on, we, uh, the union hall, dead was in the union, and the union hall was only two blocks from station six. And we're downtown. So if you put a second alarm in, a third alarm in, it, you, it's just back-to-back sirens. The station's so close together. It has several row houses on fire, and uh, I guess he heard the sirens and could tell something was up. So he left a union meeting. My company, uh, I was the youngest one, so I was the second man on the Niles, but we were going up the steps and the whole row house was on fire. And his mask leaked a little bit of something happened to him. And he the just the kind guy of, on the nozzle in front of you? guy on the nozzle. And he just kind of fell backwards and went all the way down to the bottom of the steps, and he passed out. Well, my father was standing in the street, and he saw the six on his helmet, and he knew I was working. Well, Robert, the next thing I know, my father in street clothes came up those steps and tapped me on the shoulder and said, son, are you okay? And all I need to do is just grab the nozzle and hold it above my head. That's all I need to do. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, you stay right here. I'm going to get you some help. And, of course, he was well-known, well-respected. And I could hear him at the bottom of the steps saying, as a man up there by himself, y'all better get your asses on up there and help him. <laughs> and I I bet it wasn't 10 seconds. It was five people all around me. <laughs> he was stepping on top of me. It was, it was all done. But that was that was one one uh, good time that we had together. And, and there were several others that we, we had a good time together. Okay. Well, what – Tell, tell me some more stories about uh, the city back in the, you know, late, you, where was this? Was this probably 71, you said, when you came back? 72. 72 uh, when you started back? in February 72. Well, I was at uh, Engine 6. At the time, Engine 6 in the old alarm system, we had the largest second alarm district in the city, mainly because number 6 was almost in the middle of the city. So we would go to, into four, all four battalions, east, west, north, south, if it, you know, if it was second alarm bigger so it was a great company really a great company to be in fires you know i have a log book that i kept for the first two years and it was some days two second long fires the same day and so this was your log but you were keeping your own book, personal wow calls that i actually went on and it was just it's just a you know those old houses catching on fire and then just other stuff going on and it was really a true experience it was an old ritual and those old school traditional fire department and i say that in a good way they it was pretty routine what you did the engine company was the engine company and truck company was a truck company when you got on scene each knew what each other was doing only person that had a portal radio back then was a battalion chief driver so everything we did you taking the second third long fire in richmond 60 75 men Everything was coordinated, and pretty much they knew what you're supposed to do, and you did it. Without without a word being without said, word. no radios, nothing. The only one that had a portable radio was a battalion chief's driver. So that was that was a real mm-hmm. experience. The 
probably the there were several big ones, but one of the biggest ones I remember, I was an acting lieutenant. And we burned up a tobacco warehouse down in Chaco Bow, a whole block long warehouse. And it went probably to, uh, it was at least three or four long fire at the time. Because I was the first in officer, I had to do the master report for the critique. So all the other companies were sent in to me what they did, and I had to compile that report, and then we went to the training center for the critique. That got interesting because you would you would go up front and say what you did. Company Six Road first, you did this. Company Twelve next, you did this. The chief at the time was pretty old, crusty old, by the book kind of guy. So he's in the back of the room, and this lieutenant been in the truck company, same truck company for like thirty years. He's a crusty old guy too. He got up front and was saying, you know, ladder one forty one did this, this, and that. So the chief interrupted him and said, uh, Lieutenant, you've got on your report that you use 500 feet of ladder. Said, uh, you don't carry that much ladder on your truck. He looked right at him and he said, well, Chief, he said, we put the Earl ladder up three different times because you couldn't make your mind up where you wanted it. He said, that's 300 feet <laughs> right there. 300 feet of ladder truck. Right. And all of us were facing forward. We trying not to laugh. <laughs> and this lieutenant staring the chief down at the back of the room. And I guess it seemed like a long time, but say but a minute. He said, carry on, Lieutenant. <laughs> let it go. We let it go, but he said, yeah. We uh, we put it up three times because you couldn't make your mind up for it. <laughs> My first day as an acting lieutenant, the Jefferson Hotel is two blocks up the street. At like five minutes after eight in the morning, came in the Jefferson Hotel, and we pulled out, and fire was blowing out the fifth story window. Good morning. And I'll have to tell you, uh, you know, I wasn't real sure what to do. But the flying squad was in the station with us. And of course, they were right directly behind us. And the lieutenant the flying squad, you know, got with me and, and helped me do that. But that was my first fire as an acting lieutenant. Well, you're good. You had that backstop yeah. at that uh, yeah. flying squad, LT. Yep. At the, uh, at the back of Warriors fire, at the height of the fire, I kept it in my logbook in the notes. We were flowing 13,750 gallons of water a minute through master streams and ladder nozzles. A minute. A minute, 13,750 gallons of water a minute. The city's got a tremendous water system, and the water department would come back on any second long fires, and they would kick extra pumps in. So you could be pumping, and when those gauges kicked in, you'd bury the needle. It would go from like 150 to 300. Throttle the engine so back. You had to, sometimes you could throttle it back and almost be island. So the city had a tremendous water supply wow. system. Very good. What the... Uh, where did you go from there? I mean, I know you, how long did you spend in the city? You went, ultimately wound up going back. Let me ask you this. While you were in the city, were you still volunteering up in Mechanicsville? Yes. Right. Yes. Kind of on and off. I got suspended three times. No, say it ain't so. <laughs> yeah. I, I know this happens other places, but as great as they were, once you become a paid person somewhere else, it's like you're a different person. Like, you're paid in the city now, you know, you... You got a black mark on you here. Yeah, you got a black mark. Oh, wow. So, and I was young and cocky, and I did a few things. I probably deserved two to three suspensions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in it, another one in the city, I'll tell you, another couple, we had a school fire. It was one of the big old schools that the city has, was block long. And that was probably about the coldest one I've ever been on. We, uh, we were there all night long. And my wagon, we ended up putting the master stream in right in front of the building. And the ladder truck was right beside us with the ladder nozzle. Well, that thing was leaking. And it dripped every piece of water right down on top of us. And it was like 10 degrees or something outside. First time I saw the water flowing down the gutter freeze. All the water coming out the building froze. But they had three Earl ladders up that night. One firefighter lost his eye. A piece of glass hit him in his eye. But the next morning... All the ladders were frozen. They had to wait for the sun to come up and melt the ice on the ladders before they could trap them and bring them down. That's, that's chilly. Yeah, that was cold. That was cold. Uh, and another one we uh, we had, I had to fill in at Station 11 at Churchill on Christmas Eve. And being in Churchill back in those days on Christmas Eve was a, a real treat. But anyway, that morning, uh, John Boone, my friend Boone I mentioned earlier, worked at 11. We had a fire in the projects, and he and I found, a, a, unfortunately, a deceased baby in a baby crib that had burned. 
So that's how the morning started. So we get back to the station cleaning things up. And, and prior to that, uh, one of the guys came around and said, give me a couple of dollars for the eating fund. I gave him a couple of dollars. So after we came back from fire cleaning up, this other guy came by and said, give me a couple of dollars. I said, I've already given to the eating fund. He said, this is for the liquor fund. This is not for the eating fund. <laughs> this is a true story. So it, it happened 50 years and ago. And there's no other names involved. Yeah. And the statute of limitations are over. So they went to the store. This guy went to the store. And I don't know if you remember those old lifting tea containers hold like a gallon or so of tea. A big and jug. Big jug. And it's on a little, like, pedestal. And you fill yourself up. But that was full of purple passion. So the chief, Patanchi, came by to pick up the reports, you know, from the death and all the extra reports that you had. And he was setting up in the kitchen. He came up and he said, I think I'll give me some tea. Well, I'll tell you what. I thought that was it. My you were the officer, right? No, no, I was oh, acting. I was oh, filling you were in. acting. You, I, you. No, I was filling in that day, just just a fill-in. But I'm thinking my whole career is going down the drain <laughs> here one day. And he put his hand on the cabinet door to get an iced tea glass. And he said, you know what? It's cold. I think I'll get some coffee. So he closed that door, and the next cabinet had coffee mugs, and he pours a, a cup of coffee and sat down at the table and stayed there for about an hour. I wasn't the same the rest of the day. <laughs> that it's, close. It scared the hell out of me. But, yeah, that happened. That close. That Jeez. Happened. That happened. Um, during my time there, we had two line of duty deaths. One was a vehicle accident where two fire trucks hit each other. And, unfortunately, threw the captain and one of them out through the windshield and hit his head on the curb, and then he lived for a day or two and passed away. Another one was over in, it was over in Southside. It was... I won't say paper bales. I'm pretty sure it was paper bales, but the big bales like weighed 900 pounds or mm. so. And they were stacked like three high. And it was a small, smoldering fire. And it had wet, the sprinkler system had activated and wet this top bale. And nobody could see it or tell it. And it was unstable. And it fell on one of the firefighters, Richmond firefighter. And of course it killed him, it crushed him. It, just about pushed the air pack all the way through his back. Mm. So, two line of duty deaths, unfortunately, during that the time I was there. But it is a, I'd have to say that was the best time of my career. Mechanics for Voluntary Fire Department was great. The city, of course, Hanover County was great. Roanoke County was great. I've been blessed to work for really good departments, but I was a tailboard firefighter in Richmond. And we was fighting L.A. to fire. So I, I didn't have to worry about personnel issues. I didn't have to worry about budget. I didn't none of that stuff. So That, that wanna, came later. <laughs> yeah. If you want to say the most fun, I'd have to say that was the most fun. I've got a lot of very old stuff from my grandfather and from my father, pictures and just a whole lot of different things. And not too long ago, Gene Tyler Furrow, the chief of Charlottesville, retired chief now, was good friends, and I knew it with my father, and I was good friends with him, and he bought an old fire alarm box at a yard sale. The old pull boxes. The old pull boxes, red boxes. And the lady who we bought it from told him that it came from Richmond. Well, every box had a number on it, and that number would tell you where it was at and what companies would respond. And every firefighter had a little red book. It was maybe three and a half inches tall, maybe two inches wide, real thin. And it had all the lawn boxes in it and the location and the companies. So Julian called me and said, hey, Rick, you know, told me what I just said. I got the number. You think your father, you might have one of your father's old lawn books. Look it up. Tell me where it was at. I said, sure, I'll look. And I didn't realize this because my father passed away and we cleaned a lot of stuff out, brought to my house, and I hadn't gone through, you know, everything. Long story short, I found my grandfather's red book, long book. And uh, guess the date on it. Uh, I'm guessing early 1900s. 1916. Yeah. 1916. That's 105 years old. And you so, still got it? I still got it. I still got it. So did you find the number? Yeah. I had the number in it. Told him where it was at. Yep. Neat. Yep. It's 105 years old. And like I said earlier, I've got some pictures of uh, him with some horses and and the first motorized apparatus in Richmond. The uh, I think you did an interview with Steve Corbell today on yeah. the Richmond Metro Flying Squad. I've met him several times, uh, and I think from what I see, he's doing a tremendous job, and what that Richmond Metro Flying Squad is doing is, is really a super job supporting firefighters. 
they're going to, they named it the Richmond Metro Flying Squad after the Flying Squad. So the city, they, they start off, I think, with an ambulance and it's grown. They got two, I think, two nice trucks now. And getting ready to get a third. They got getting another one coming in. And the city gave them an old fire station, 017, that was built in, I want to say, 1907. Been vacant for about five years because they built a new one. And they gave that to them as their quarters. So they are really fixing it up, getting the kitchen, the bunk room, getting everything fixed back up to, to operate it up. And they have guys on call that will come out and take the rehab unit to a fire mm-hmm. and all. But I think their goal is to have the bunk room set up. And if you had to do tonight, you can go spend the night and the old guys come in just like you used to and drink coffee. And I've got, as I said, a bunch of old stuff, but I have a table that came from number six. And it was that old number six, which was torn down with the toll road and all that that came through. And I was at the new six. But there's a card table in there that's made of some very, very old wood. The original tabletop is planks across the top of it. It's not a solid top. But somebody made a Formica top to fit over top of that. And they would play dominoes on it all the time. So it's an X one in the middle of that table where they slam slide the dominoes down. down and slide it into the middle. It's wore the Formica down so bad it's, you can see the worn pattern in there. Well, my father told me, going back a little bit, Chief Sherry, who was chief of the department, grew up on Oregon Hill. And his best buddy, Gilly O'Brien, grew up on Oregon Hill. Gilly was a firefighter, never wanted to be anything else. But they say Chief Sherry would come down there every day on B shift and play dominoes, and Gilly was his partner. Never came on A shift, only on B shift at 4 o'clock. And my father told me there had been more transfers and promotions made over that card table than made in the office. <laughs> if the card table could talk. If man. Gilly liked you, you, you got it. If you didn't, you didn't. Wow. A battalion, Gilly didn't even transfer for 24 hours. You know, to another station, and this one battalion chief transferred, and when they got promoted, the next day came back. The battalion chief was transferred, <laughs> and Gilly, Gilly was back at number six. Gilly was back at number six, and they said that old station. I'm sure, like a lot of the old neighborhood stations, there were no Seven Elevens and things like that around. So they would sell candy, drinks, French fries on Saturday night, hot dogs at the back of the fire station to the neighborhood kids. So we talk about today. You know, community policing and fire stations being community involved in community activities, we're going back to we're where going it, back to where it was. Going back to where it was. And those stations were you. You mentioned that um, you know, your second, third do companies were like right on top of you. And I guess either legends go that uh, the the way those old city stations and districts were laid out was that was about as far as a horse could run. Yeah. And and the reason the stations were so close is you had the horses couldn't run that far to the to the fire, so they were close together. Right. And you're exactly right. In this run book, they, they had, of course, back for grandfather's time, was exactly <clears throat> what you said. And I looking through it, number six was like on the third lawn in some places because it was so many stations from NAS number six is first day uh, because they eliminated so many of those the, stations. Those, are, those middle stations are gone. Gone because motorized apparatus. <clears throat> but you're exactly right. In the beginning, that's where they were close. They were very close together. Wow. Yep. He, yeah, even Steve talked about that that station. You can see the outline of the barn doors in the back where they used to have the, the hay bales in the back of the station where they feed the horses. And, well, there was so. One other story that stands out. Uh, a lot of people probably know this guy, Wayne Dawson. He was in the flying squad, and we had a pretty good-sized apartment building on fire, and the fire burned up all the way through the base through the floor. Well, with us being stationed with the flying squad, we got there at the same time. There's always competition. Let's who gets the water on the fire first. Well, being Wait, a, firefighters competing to who gets the nozzle. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. okay. Yeah. So that's been around for a while, too. As a side note, in the old days, a battalion chief, every company had a color. So everything you had was painted. If your company color was yellow, the nozzle was painted yellow, the hose was painted. When the fire was out, the battalion chief would come in and look. If you were first in and your nozzle were one the closest to the fire, you'd have to explain to him why. Really? Yep. <laughs> but in this case... We were in a hurry, we pulled a pre-connect, and it's a typical city, you got like t- six feet of sidewalk and six feet of yard and then you're in the front door. We pulled a pre-connect off, we got it all tangled up in the street. So my company, we made it to the top of the steps. Couldn't go any further, couldn't get any hose. So the flying squad was right on top of us. 
And of course, we asked him to give us a look at some more hose, and you know, you can figure that answer. <laughs> you get your own goddamn hose. <laughs> we're the flying squad. We yeah. Don't, we don't so they came on up. They kind of kicked us and laughed at us because you know we were stuck. Well, it wasn't a few minutes later. I heard the damnest scream I believe I've ever heard in the fire service, and uh, the floor had burnt all the way through, and hot and cold water copper pipes were running through the floor joists, but they they were red hot. And all we had back those days was three-quarter boots. And the first guy on the squad, Nozzle, fell in that hole. And he straddled those two red-hot pipes. With nothing but a pair of uniform nothing pants, pair of uniform protect, pants protecting the, the yep. tackle. Yep. That's a scream that I'll still remember. I can imagine. Still remember. So, uh, so those are your days in the city. That's a little glimpse into the city time how did you how did you wind up in Hanover as a deputy chief well as being active in the volunteers out there I knew the system pretty well and I'll, I'll tell you the truth I thought the city you know, would be the rest of my life took a lieutenant's test in the city in the city yeah. and it was 180 some people took the test written test I came in number seventh on the written and I was involved in the union the president of the union came in number one on the written, and they took the top 40 to assessment center. And that's when assessment centers was just the coming thing. You know, it was so when it was over with, I moved to 27th, and the union president went to 40th. He could have not shown up and been <laughs> 40th plate. And we knew, we knew something wasn't right, so I agreed to be part of with two or three other firefighters of a lawsuit against the city over the promotional process. And through that through that process, we were able to get the assessor's papers and stuff, and it was in pencil, and you could see they'd been erased and changed, and scores had been changed and stuff. But it took a two-year court process. And at the end, the judge ruled that the city did wrong, you know, you gotta do this, 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 and this, but they wouldn't go back and demote anybody because it'd been two years, which I understand. I, I, I totally understand that. It was wrong in the beginning, but you promoted after two promoted years. Yeah, after two years, go back. So for me, after that, it just wasn't. It wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. And the uh, deputy chief's job came open, and and had over, and I knew some of the people, and got interested in it, applied, and next thing I know, I was leaving the city and going to to Hanover. So who was uh, at the time? What, what year was this that you went to Hanover? Nineteen seventy-seven. So who was what was fire administration like then? Was I, obviously there's no operational. They're all volu- still all volunteer companies across the county. What did the staff look like at that point? The staff at the time was uh, Chief Mike Harmon, and he he was a paid chief, and they had a deputy chief's job, and that was the only two paid positions at at that time. So what what was the deputy chief responsible for when you came? So you, were you the first deputy chief, or you were somebody else there first? I was. Probably about the third or fourth one. They, Ronald, um, Hanover County, hired their first paid chief, I think, in the 60s. And, of course, that went for a while, and they had another one. And I believe Mike started, I know Mike started as the deputy chief. And then that chief left, and then Mike moved up to chief. And he had two other deputy chiefs before me. So you figure if they started in 65 and I went in 77, that's a whole lot of chiefs coming and going there for a while. But that was the nature of the beast at the time. It it was a tough job. So what were you responsible for as the deputy chief in a a volunteer system like that? Well, in the beginning, Mike and I just did a little bit of everything. Both of us did a little bit of everything. And I've got to really give the volunteers credit in Hanover County at the time. I'd say that I put that bunch up you know, against anybody. They were well-trained, well-disciplined, like first-class, all the stations, with exception maybe one or two. You always have <laughs> we'll, one or two. We'll leave them blank. Yeah, you always have one or two. But they really did a great job. And we had a fire chief's board that was made up of the volunteer chiefs and Mike and myself. One time, 10 of our 12 volunteer chiefs were paid firefighters either in Richmond, Hanover, or Chesterfield. Richmond Henrico, which I was going to Richmond yeah. Henrico, okay. yes, yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. So we, we got the best of everything. So they were paid firefighters paid and fire. doing the volunteer, volunteer district chief on the days off. Gotcha. And what made that so good was Hanover was so new. When a new idea or something came up, we were flexible enough to, well, let's try it. 
Well, you know, that traditional city and the Henrico system a little bit bigger, Chesterfield's a little bit bigger, you gotta go through the hoops and this. So we were the first ones to have inch and three quarter and automatic nozzles, and we were the first ones to have enclosed cap, uh, cab trucks in a Richard Hanover Chesterfield area. Wow. And mm-hmm. we got all this input from these other places, and we were able to say, you know, we were flexible enough still in that system. So let's go try this. We didn't have to go through a big chain of command or anything. And we had tremendous cooperations. We actually started, uh, the county administrator, I traveled a lot, and, and Mike took vacations too. He got worried that both of us being in town at the same time. So Mike told me that, and I was the one that traveled the most, and I said, damn, we gotta come up with something here. So we came up with the idea of what we call a duty chief program. And we took select volunteer chiefs that wanted to and trained them in some of the things that you gotta do as chief, like you gotta death, who you gotta notify. And dealing with the county kind of stuff. Dealing with the county kind of stuff. And I think we had, I think we had eight of the 12 that participated in the program. So whenever either one of us was out of town, one of them would be given the duty. It, it, it really went great. I mean, it, it worked good. It was a little concerned in the beginning, volunteer chief in this area. Now, they accepted Mike and I as a county chief, but now this volunteer chief from down the road is going to be maybe commanding your fire. But they found out, hey, you're doing it today. I'm doing it tomorrow. We, we just. We got to do the job because yeah, tomorrow might all, be different. Yeah, let's just all play well in the sandbox together. And it really turned into a tremendous program, really a, a great program. How did, uh, what, what was the evolution of administration like? I, I, I came there in 1993, and th- there was some, a lot more administrative staff, training, fire marshal's office. How did, how did all that come about and the growth in the career side of the department back then? The next person we hired, and it was because Hannah was starting to grow, was a fire marshal, Russ Challen. I don't know if you may remember Russ Challen. Yeah, Russ, is, Russ has been on here. and had, Has had, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Russ is a good guy. I enjoyed working with him. Uh, so he was first, and then soon after that is when fire programs came out with giving localities money, you know, from the uh, grant. The insurance fund? Yes, insurance, two, yeah. yes. Fire programs fund, I think is what it went That's up. That's what it yeah. ended up called. And you could only use that money for certain things. So back then, everything was, you know, tight on money and this and that. We, long story short, we told the county we could pay half the salary of a training officer because we were getting to the point we needed training next. So we got that through and then the next one, uh, the county back then, the volunteers did a lot but the county was starting to really do a lot as far as furnishing equipment and maintenance of the vehicles and that kind of stuff. So logistics became a problem. So the next area that uh, expanded was logistics. So we had the fire marshal's office, at the time, one, maybe two people in there, a train officer, assistant train officer, and a logistics captain. And then later, we hired assistant logistics captain. And that's what they had when I left in uh, 96. From that time on, as you well know, they eventually merged voluntary rescue and fire together as one department. And career staff started coming on in both the uh, rescue side and the fire side. Yep. And uh, heck, we've been—we're almost an hour now, so we'll we'll talk about a couple couple of uh, Hanover stories. And you'd mentioned um, earlier about you didn't, as a f- tailboard jump seat firefighter, you didn't have to deal with uh, budgets and personnel issues, and you also didn't have to deal with uh, citizen complaints. And uh, we were talking at lunch about one you got—the phone call about uh, some engine crossing the center line for some reason. So tell me about that story. But so now, now as the chief. Yeah. The deputy chief, you well, get the uh, phone calls or the complaints from the citizens. This is not one of the pleasant ones. The lady called and uh, she said, the fire truck ran over and killed a cat. And I said, well, ma'am, you know, was it an accident? Cat run the road? She said, no, they crossed the double line and ran over top of the cat. And my little girl was in the car with me. So this was not a funny story. No. But that's, you want to want to complaints that uh yeah that wasn't so i called down the station i knew they had a call i called down there yeah we did it i was like okay yeah we did it and back then 
it was real loosey-goosey of what the county chief and deputy chief could do to a volunteer. And that was going to be my next yeah. question. What yeah, what, what authority really, did you have in that kind yeah, of scenario? Much more than I could say at the time, you know, that's wrong. Don't do it Don't anymore. Do it. And that, that's because you know how it is when that transition between volunteer and the county paid chief and who has what authority and who rules over another one. I can tell you a funny story on myself. Go get it. Uh, I'm sure many of your, uh, your listeners know Frank Eckert. Sure. He's, he a, he's a legend, too. Absolutely, in many ways. <laughs> in many <laughs> multiple. ways multiple ways we're still good friends today in fact i talked to him today but we were going to ucrops in ashland to eat and ucrops had it was a nice lunch people in there lunch business people came and ate lunch so i was in a hurry that day and we were standing in line and we wore bad shirts back then and name tags and everything and it was a big line i was in a hurry and i said frank let's go somewhere else he said well I'll see some people here. Let's let's stay. I won't stay. I said, okay, I'll stay, but I don't have time to bullshit. So we ate lunch, did all that stuff, and I went back to the office that afternoon, and usually Mike, the chief, he would handle any complaints that came in, but he'd take the afternoon off. So the secretary came in and said, Rick, you know, got laid on the thing here. Wants to make a complaint. You want to take it? Give it to the chief next week. I'll, I'll take it. Whatever reason, I said hello. I didn't say hello, Chief Birch. So the lady was very nice. She said, I'm, I'm married to a Henrika lieutenant firefighter. If he knew I was calling to make a complaint on firefighter, it would be bad. And he, you know, it really wouldn't be bad. She went on and on. I said, ma'am, it's okay. Just just tell me. She said, well, I was in Ucrops today. And if you know Frank, <laughs> my first thought is, what in the hell did Frank what do What did Frank do? So she went on and started telling the story. Two guys there, uniform and all. And evidently, one of them was in a hurry because he told them he would stay but didn't have time to bullshit. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, I wasn't Frank. <laughs> I said, okay. And she said, I just don't know what to do. And I said, well, ma'am, I know how you feel, and I know this guy personally. Oh, she said and his name was Birch. His <laughs> name was that. So I know this guy personally, and I can tell you he feels the same way you do. And if he could be here right now, he would apologize you for that and agree with you so we talked for a few minutes and when it was over she said oh you've been so nice i was so worried about <laughs> making this phone call and i just thank you so much you made me feel so much better i said me too ma'am thank you yeah so that was that was one on myself there we go i've got a few more left for hanover if you hey, let's do let's do them yeah can, go ahead we can carry them the next time go ahead tell drop one more one or two more from hanover and well some of the things that uh stand out was the kd king's dominion we work with them very closely. And technical rescue, Mark Light and Charlie King and the beach guys from Virginia Beach, I think Mike Brown Mike, and all yeah. that bunch. Jay Sargent. Jay Sargent. They uh, called me and wanted to do some repelling off the Eiffel Tower. And I talked to Kingsman and they allowed it. And that was the very beginning of that group started that training here at Kings Dominion in Hanover. We had a good relationship with Kings Dominion. Kings Dominion presented some, some new challenges to us when you have lions and tigers and things like that. I heard Brett tell you the story of the ostrich. Brett, Brett got his butt beat by he, an ostrich. He did that. <laughs> he did that. that. That ostrich almost killed him. We, uh, another story on me, I was going through divorce court and we was in the judge's chambers close to the Ashland Fire Station. It was a big old roller mill plant up on the, right one on the river that was there in the Civil War and everybody knew one day this big old Wooden mills. Ashland roller mills. Ashland yeah. roller mills. Yeah, it was going to burn. So my father was with me sitting in the back, and the station siren next door kept going off, and it would rattle the windows in the corners. Well, the judge was a you know Hanover guy, and we briefly knew each other. So my father went over, found out was come back, came up, whispered in my ear, and you could see me. I'm dancing in You're the You're ready seat. to go. So the judge said, son, do you need to go? And I remember what I said. I said, y'all, the goddamn roller mills is burning down. <laughs> he said, well, you go. That's more important. I said, you sure? I don't want to mess up. He said, you go. So I'm gone. We run over there, and of course, we go up to the roller mills. And it's hundreds of people, the spectators on the side of the road, one, you know, watching. Big, big fire. But from what I, I heard that when I left, my wife had a fancy lawyer from the West End, and when I went out the building, he said, well, I guess it's a big deal to have a fire around here. And the judge stood up, and he said, yes, it is, and I'm on the way up there right now myself. <laughs> So I saw him stand <laughs> on the sidelines, and we pulling hoes doing this. He looked at me and said, Rick, don't you worry about a thing. He said, we'll take care of this. <laughs> there you go. So, you know, just a just small, small co county 
judges and courts and everybody knows everybody. And I think we're going to take a break right there and break this episode into two parts. Uh, Chief Birch, with a more than 43-year career in the fire service, has a lot of stories to tell. And uh, his time in Roanoke and points beyond across the country are going to have to wait for episode part two. So make sure you tune in next week to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast to catch the rest of the story. As for now, just make sure that if you have any comments or suggestions, to drop me a note at firehouselogbook at gmail.com or check us out on the Facebook page. Uh, and if you're familiar with the Facebook page, go to FD Logbook on Facebook and you'll see a couple of pictures of uh, Chief Birch and maybe the elder Birch Sr. as well. Thanks for joining us. Tune in next week for part two. Thank you.